the University of New England Center for Global Humanities and its founding director, Anwar Majid, host Stephen Smith on patriotism, our most contested virtue. This event was recorded on September 27, 2021. Listen and enjoy as Anwar Majid introduces the speaker. I'm delighted, I'm very, very honored to have Stephen Smith come from Yale to give us our inaugural lecture for this series. He is, his biography is very extensive. Uh, he just spoke recently at uh, uh, the Arizona State University in Tempe to a big audience. So I hope our smaller audience tonight doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, affect you in any way. I mean, you, he is the Alfred Kaus Professor of Political Science at Yale University. He is the author of books on Hegel, Spinoza, Leo Strauss, and Abraham Lincoln. His introduction to political philosophy has been viewed worldwide on the Yale courses online, and he is an avid New York Yankees fan. So please help me welcome uh, Steve, Stephen Stigopoulos. I'm afraid I might have lost about half the audience with that uh, Yankees remark, but okay, it, it, uh, it, is, it is true. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you very much uh, for coming out uh, for this event, and uh, it's an honor for me to be here uh, to kick off this series, and it's a, a real pleasure to have come up and visited Portland and see the Humanities Center here and the work that's been done by Anwar and his colleagues. I just, I just love it. Before I begin, uh, let me just, again, I wanna thank Anwar for the invitation. I'm honored to be part of this group and to, again, kick off the year. And I also wanna thank very much Lucille, who uh, we've developed a friendship over, the cor over, over email, and it was a pleasure to meet her, and she's, she was great. Thank you, Lucille. Um, so I'm going <clears> to <throat> speak to you a little bit tonight about my book, uh, Reclaiming Patriotism in an Age of Extremes. And I really sort of, I'll, I'll talk for a little while, but I hope largely that we can use the occasion and the time that we've got together this evening to just begin a conversation about uh, what is patriotism, what is America, what you know, what does the country stand for, where are we going, and so on. So let me just dive into the topic and you'll get a flavor of what the book uh, is about. Uh, if you're interested in the book, they're selling them on the front, uh, by the way. Uh, so this will, for better or worse, this will give you a little bit of a taste of what I've written. I mentioned the term patriot or patriotism on a university campus or in educated circles, and you are likely to hear Samuel Johnson's barb that patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. You might even hear, maybe less often, George Bernard Shaw's statement that patriotism is the belief that your country is best because you were born in it. Uh, or maybe you would hear E.M. Forster's comment that if he had to betray either his country or his friend, Forster said he hoped he would have the guts to betray his country. The anti-patriots have some very good lines and a very distinguished list of heavy hitters. I, I could go on further. 
but you get the idea. This is hardly to say that patriotism is on the verge of disappearance, but it does seem to be ethically challenged, particularly in today's climate of cancel culture and political correctness. In fact, once you leave any metropolitan environment, it is not difficult at all to find people who, ex with no reservations about expressing their love of country and are willing to do so on bumper stickers, on cars and trucks, in bars and diners, and in houses of worship. The problem is that the country many of them profess to love is often at odds with what many of us would find welcoming. It is often insular, exclusionary, and intolerant. So given this dilemma, what is a liberal like myself and a patriot to do? This was the dilemma in which I found myself when I began writing this book, Reclaiming Patriotism in an Age of Extremes. I must admit that one of the secret pleasures I had in writing the book was seeing the expressions of shock, of horror, and disgust on the faces of colleagues when I would tell them that I was writing a book in defense of patriotism. All I can say is that I wore their contempt as a badge of honor. But first of all, let me get to some definitions. The idea that we share a common history held together by collective memory is the source of the disposition that we call patriotism. Patriotism is an old, even an ancient term. It goes back to the Greek word patris, meaning place of one's ancestors, and maybe more famously to the Latin patria, or fatherland. Broadly associated with love of country, the idea of patriotism raises many problems. Like every form of love, patriotism is partly determined by the object of its affection. To make us love our country, Edmund Burke wrote in his Reflections on the Revolution in France, to make us love our country, our country ought to be lovely. But what if it isn't? Then what? Is love of country unconditional? Is in the statement, my country right or wrong? Or is it dependent on our country meeting certain standards of right conduct? And what, again, if it doesn't? There is also the question of what makes love of country an admirable sentiment. In his famous funeral oration, Pericles exhorted his fellow Athenians to feed your eyes upon the city, Athens, until love of her fills your hearts. But does love of country as a kind of almost erotic attachment force us to ignore the flaws in the beloved? Do we become like Pygmalion, who fell in love with his own creation? Hannah Arendt once wondered whether it's even possible to love an abstraction like a country composed of millions of people one can never know. Isn't love something that we can only express toward individuals? These are some of the questions I explore in the book and that I hope we can spend some time exploring together today. Patriotism 
has always been a contested virtue to get to the title of this talk because it must contend with other loyalties to family, to friends, to tribe, to religion. We are creatures of multiple loyalties. As any reader of Sophocles' Antigone would immediately recognize the conflict between loyalty to family and loyalty to state is as old as Western literature itself. In the case of the virtually inevitable conflict of loyalties, it is by no means clear which should take priority. The ancient philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, all believed that the life of contemplation, the philosophic life, was superior to the political life of the citizen. And early Christians, like St. Augustine, taught that the city of God should take precedence over the earthly city. Again, patriotism has always been contested in, in the Western tradition. Modern patriotism, however, has to contend with two alternatives in our culture that vie for predominance. These are nationalism and multiculturalism. One way I try to think about patriotism is in the book is to look at it on a kind of Aristotelian continuum. What do I mean by that? Aristotle taught us that all virtues represent a mean, a kind of virtuous middle point between extremes of what he called excess and deficiency. In our day, I want to consider patriotism along these lines with the excess rep being represented by nationalism and the deficiency being represented by multiculturalism. These are the two extremes, almost the pathologies, as it were, from which I want to disentangle patriotism. Let me say a little more about what I mean by that. You're with me? We're good, okay. On the right, I mean the political right, patriotism needs to be distinguished from nationalism although the two are often confused and often thought of as ident almost identical. Nationalism and patriotism initially grow out of a common source, a common root, as it were, a legitimate desire to have one's culture, to have one's way of life strong and respected. But over time, they morph into two different directions, nationalism especially has morphed into an ideology of grievance and resentment. Nationalism was the product of a new political form that grew up in the late 18th and early 19th century called the modern nation state. And over time, nationalism as a product of this new form of political organization became a weapon for determining who is in and who is out who belongs and who does not. Nationalist stories are typically narratives of treason and betrayal by unscrupulous elites in which listeners or readers are encouraged to feel contempt for fellow citizens who fall outside the dominant national group. Nationalists seek the warmth of community, but always at the expense of an outgroup who are deemed to be corrupt, traitorous, 
or to use a term that we've heard in recent years, enemies of the people. Nationalism thrives in the language of friend and enemy and is impossible without it. On January 6th, the group shouting patriots to the front, I would argue, were guilty of a gross misuse of the term patriot. These are people who claim to love America, but display contempt, if not hatred, for many, many actual Americans. How can that be patriotic? So much for the right. On the left, let me be an equal opportunity critic, patriotism, the critique of patriotism, is undertaken by multiculturalism in what has come to be called identity politics. Multiculturalism was originally an academic theory that sought to give voice to previously underrepresented minority groups, women, African-American, and gays. But over time, it has morphed into a race for victim status and a far-reaching critique of American history. Critical race theory of the kind endorsed by the 1619 Project and promoted by the New York Times dates the American founding from the time when 20 African slaves were sold to the Jamestown colony in Virginia. In this account of American history, or in this account, American history, even the American Revolution is presented as based upon persistent racial oppression and white supremacy. And although these claims have been widely repudiated by some of our best historians, they continue to gain traction in public schools and in universities. Private schools, actually, more than the public ones. Such a view is based on a radical simplification and reduction of all American history to a single theme. It overlooks the fact that even at the time of the American founding, the institution of slavery was highly contested. The original version of the Declaration of Independence included a pointed denunciation of slavery as a practice incompatible with the rights of man. Benjamin Franklin and Alexander Hamilton were head of the abolitionist societies in Pennsylvania and New York and so on and so on. From our beginnings, in other words, slavery was a contested institution. And to pretend that the defense of white supremacy is the one constant running throughout our history is false to the facts of our national experience. One reason I cannot accept this view of America as a white supremacist nation is that it identifies, or excuse me, it denies the efforts of generations of Americans both black and white, in their struggle to achieve a more perfect union and a more open and inclusive society. Slavery may be an irreparable stain on America, but it is not the essence of America. So where does patriotism fit into this account? Patriotism, as I've suggested earlier, is a form of love or of loyalty. We admire loyalty to family, to friends, to sports teams, even institutions up to a point. Yet loyalty also sits un uneasily with other qualities that we equally admire, qualities such as fairness, 
justice, mercy, equality, and open-mindedness. These don't always seem to sit easily together. There seems something primitive, almost primordial about loyalty, almost like the mafia code of omerta, kind of silence around the family. But loyalty, as I argue in the book, is the first virtue of our social institutions. Without it, our collective life would not last or could not last for a single day. Loyalties are affirmations of what we care about. And our cares are not momentary whims or desires, but more like a structure of commitments. We are loyal to the things we care about and care about those to which we remain loyal. Our cares make our lives more than a series of discrete and disconnected events in time, but provide us with a sense of wholeness and connection. What we care about defines the kinds of persons we are or wish to be. Loyalty, I want to argue, is a virtue of character. Is when somebody says, I've got your back, or when we describe someone as a stand-up guy. It means that is someone we can count on. Whether loyalty is hardwired into our biological makeup, as some social psychologists have argued, or whether it is a litmus test for distinguishing conservatives who ostensibly value loyalty to particular groups from liberals who ostensibly value more universalist commitments, is not important for my purposes. My argument is that loyalty is inseparable from our nature as political animals, and we do not function well without it. So let me turn this so far maybe slightly abstract discussion of loyalty to the theme of patriotism. Because patriotism is a form of loyalty, or what I call in the book a form of constitutional loyalty. It is not simply loyalty to the people of the United States, but loyalty to a particular constitutional order, what we call a constitutional democracy, or sometimes a liberal democracy. Our pledge of allegiance is an oath to the flag and to the republic for which it stands. This is already to stake a claim. American patriotism is not loyalty based on blood and soil, but to a form of government, a republic, or a democracy probably as we would call it today. Ours is a uniquely constitutional patriotism. A change of constitution, not just a change of administrations, but a change of constitution would require a fundamental shift of loyalty. A fascist or a communist America would no longer be the regime established by the Constitution and could no longer serve as the basis of citizen loyalty. It would be the same country, but it would be a different America. American patriotism, as, as I've been describing it so far, is uniquely a patriotism of ideas. We are and have been from our beginnings, a, you might say, a people of the book or maybe of the books. Uh, the Puritans came to New England and thought of themselves as creating a city on the hill, a new Jerusalem in the wilderness of New England. 
This is why, for example, the Hebrew Urim Viturmum, uh, somewhat ludicrously translated as light and truth, is on the seal of the university where I teach. The constitutional framers, the authors of the first written constitution in history, followed in their footsteps, attempting to create a text that would stand the test of time. From our beginnings, ours has been a patriotism rooted in ideas, and no idea was more important than the idea of equality, given voice in the Declaration of Independence, and no one put greater emphasis upon that concept than our greatest patriot, Abraham Lincoln. And to give you a little spoiler alert, um, Lincoln is sort of the hero of my book. I have never had a feeling politically that did not spring from the sentiments embodied in the Declaration of Independence. That's what Lincoln told an audience in Constitution Hall on his way to the White House in February 1861. Lincoln tried to teach that our principles are not the property of one people or one race to be hoarded and jealously conserved. His writings continually emphasized the open and inclusive character of the American Republic in contrast to the nativists and nationalists of his time. The American Republic, he argued, is not defined by religion, race, or ethnic background, but by adherence to the principles of rights and liberties embodied in the Declaration itself. He offered an enlarged reading of the Declaration's language as applying to a broader segment of mankind and not simply to those British descendants of North Americans who were already here in 1776. This inclusive conception of America took the immediate form of opposition to the nativist and anti-immigrant policies of the American party of his time. The party called itself the American party, better known to us today as the know-nothings, kind of anti-immigrant party. In a speech in Chicago, Lincoln noted that those who can trace their bloodline directly back to the founding generation grows smaller and smaller with the passage of time. But rather than deploring that fact, Lincoln used the occasion to welcome those of recent ancestry to the table. He added to this judgment a belief that it is important to remove obstacles or weights, as he called them, to their enjoyment of the rights of citizenship. This language of lifting weights and burdens from the shoulders of men and women clearly collect, connects Lincoln's language back to the Puritan notion of a calling and a quest for salvation from the burdens of original sin. But for Lincoln, the original political sin was slavery and inequality, and the mission of the American Republic was released from that fallen state. For Lincoln, patriotism was never a complacent satisfaction with who we are, but rather an aspiration, an aspirational disposition to what we might yet become. Okay? All right. 
But loyalty to a constitutional order is not only a matter of principles and aspirations, but also of habits and manners. It is a matter, uh, to use the language I use in the book, it is a matter of both logos and ethos. That is to say, of both the head and the heart. It requires an understanding of the principles of republican government, but patriotism is also what Tocqueville called a habit of the heart. An ethos is not just a way of thinking, but of feeling. This suggests that patriotism is something ingrained in our moral sentiments and dispositions. Tocqueville's appeal to the heart was clearly drawing on the work of an earlier French philosopher named Blaise Pascal, who believed that knowing is a matter of both reason and faith. In one of his most famous passages, Pascal wrote, the heart has reasons that reason itself does not know. In other words, patriotism requires both reason and feeling, or as I said a moment ago, both logos and ethos. This concept of ethos, ethos patriotism, is an ancient one. It comes from a Greek word for habit or character. The pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus remarked that the ethos of a man is his destiny, suggesting that character is fate. The ethos of a society embodies those traits of character that are looked up to as normative by the community, regarding certain character traits as admirable or worthy of emulation. Every society, every political order implicitly admits the superiority of a specific human type, whether this is the aristocrat, the priest, the warrior, the entrepreneur, or the common man. The ethos describes the character or tone of a society, what it finds most admirable, what it, what it looks up to. This is not to say that any community will be composed of identical human types, but rather that they will possess certain distinctive features and character traits that form their collective ethos. This is what enables us, uh, particularly when we're abroad, to select certain character traits as typically American and be able to identify someone as American by sometimes to our discomfort uh, on the basis of the way they talk, they gesticulate, their body language, and all kinds of other, you might say, subliminal signals. All of these, you might say, constitute our character or ethos. This idea of an ethos patriotism, not just a patriotism, again, based on commitments and, and intellectual or philosophical principles and beliefs, but on ethos or character, runs, runs into difficulties that I alluded to earlier. Doesn't loyalty to one country or way of life stand in contradiction with the principles of equality and moral inclusiveness that are equally part of American patriotism? How can I regard all persons as equal if my loyalties are primarily to my own country alone? Where do we draw the line between what we owe to fellow citizens and what we owe to fellow human beings who may be experiencing pain and suffering? This is a question, by the way, not just for Americans. It is raised at every Passover, Seder, 
when the question is asked, what, what do we owe the stranger? Some version of that question is also at the core of our current debates over border security and immigration. Are we at bottom a nation of immigrants who welcome the stranger? Uh, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, as Emma Lazarus famously put it? Or do we require a border wall as a way of protecting our national sovereignty? How broadly or narrowly do we draw that line? In defining ourselves too broadly, we risk losing our ethos. In defining ourselves too narrowly, we risk losing our humanity. I'm here to tell you that there is no algorithm for solving this problem. I wish there were. It requires prudence, it requires wisdom, and it requires enlightened statecraft, something that we are in great shortage of at the moment and for a while. The fear is that ethos patriotism will lead to an insular version of a fortress America, an embattled island in a sea of moral and political chaos. I mean, this is not an irrational fear. But I want to argue that loyalty to country does not require me to be indifferent, much less hostile to the needs of others. Loyalty to country is something like loyalty to family. Let me explain that. This does not require me to think that my family is better than all other families. I mean, what would that even mean? I may love my family best, but this does not require me to think it better than others, much less to despise others. It does, however, require me to give some moral preference to my own family. My preference for my child, my wish to see him get into a good school, have a satisfying career to prosper and succeed is not some immoral desire to see him win at all costs, much less a desire that others around him should fail. Rather, I would be rather failing in my duty as a parent if I were, were to regard his interests behind some kind of artificially imposed veil of ignorance. And yet at the same time, I would equally be failing in my duties if I did not instill or try to instill some conceptions of fair play and justice. And what is true about families holds true for larger units like states. Partiality for my own country does not lead me to be hostile to others, except for times of war. Rarely do we find ourselves locked in a zero-sum game where what's good for one is bad for the other. There's nothing shameful about looking after or attending the interests of American workers and farmers first. In fact, arguably, we look after others better when we first learn to look after ourselves. This is not a recipe for economic isolationism or protectionism. The well-being of our country, just like the well-being of our neighborhoods, are better when those around us are prospering and doing well. Um, if I can use Hillel's famous dictum, if I am not for myself, who will be for me, is not simply a statement of individual responsibility, but of social obligation that puts fellow citizens at the top of our list of moral priorities. Another fear is that ethos patriotism leads us to ignore past and present injustices resulting in a kind of blind faith. This is a legitimate concern, but it's not really the case. 
patriotism, as I understand it, can be self-critical and self-correcting. Consider the case of Congressional Medal of Honor winners who had previously been overlooked due to their race. What is this but an expression of regret for our previous failures and, and a desire to enlarge who was considered part of the American family? Or to take another example, no one ever doubted Ronald Reagan's patriotism, yet he apologized to Japanese Americans for their internment during World War II. Patriotism is not the same thing as simply my country right or wrong. It is, in fact, as I've been suggesting, a desire to see our country live up to its highest purposes. This was the idea behind Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, in which King appealed to the country to live up to its founding principles. Like Lincoln before him, he appealed to the Declaration of Independence as America's mission statement and as his constant pole star. Even while protesting Southern segregation statutes, he did not lose his faith in America and its progressive aspirations. King's act of simple and dignified resistance, like that of Gandhi and Mandela, shows that patriotism can be combined with self-criticism, often severe self-criticism. I am reminded here of Lincoln's description of Americans as an almost chosen people. I love that expression, almost chosen people. The term almost suggesting that there is more work to be done. But this, is not, but this was not based on a repudiation of who we are, but a call to live up to what is best in what we are. Lincoln, like Gandhi, King, and Mandela, were what the political theorist Michael Walzer called connected critics, connected critics, because their criticism was premised on a prior set of loyalties. Their protests appealed to what was best in their traditions, not what was worst. Critique is best exercised when it grows not out of detachment and resentment, but out of care and love and concern. This is an example which I think many of today's social justice activists might take a lesson. Things, of course, were not always this way. Colleges and universities were once considered the custodians of our most important moral and civic values. Fields like history, political science, and literature were taught to prepare one for a life of national service. Patriotism was not regarded as an indoctrination into an ideology, but a component of an educated mind. The proper love of country is something that must be taught the proper love of country belonged to a literary tradition that might include, among other things, Shakespeare's great patriotic speech and Richard II, you remember, this blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England. But in an American context would certainly include works like Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, Ralph Waldo Emerson's Self-Reliance, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, all of which taught for generations what it means to be an American. Today, we would add the works of Frederick Douglass, James Baldwin, and Toni Morrison to that list. At Yale, the university where I've taught for over 30 years, students, find, students and faculty find themselves constantly surrounded by plaques and memorials dedicated to the men and women who have given their lives for their country. 
A statue of Nathan Hale stands outside of Connecticut Hall. The Great Rotunda in Woolsey Hall has inscribed on its walls the names of every Yale graduate who has died in every war since the American Revolution, including those who lost their lives fighting for the Confederacy. The Cenotaph at Beinecke Plaza commemorates Yaleys who gave their lives in World War I, and behind it, the names of the great battles of the war are etched on the entrance to commons. Over the memorial gate at Branford College is an inscription that reads, for God, for country, and for Yale. When students read this today, if they read it at all, it seems no more than a quaint reminder of a benighted past. My point is that patriotism requires education. It's, it is something that must be taught, and if it isn't, it degrades into its opposites. Today, it is necessary to reclaim or to recapture patriotism from the two contending dispositions that I described a bit earlier. Those on the left, let me just repeat in a slightly different way. Those on the left have largely ignored patriotism when they have not been openly contemptuous of it. They view any expression of national loyalty as an expression of racism and white supremacy. But if patriotism must be rehabilitated from the, those on the left, it must be recaptured from those on the right. For them, love of country is too often used as a cudgel to separate and divide Americans, to separate the ins from the outs. Among the new nationalists are people who see themselves at war with relativism, multiculturalism, and identity politics that they view as posing an existential threat to American national character. The language of fear, invasion, and impurity remains a staple of this rhetoric. Yet whatever may be the sins of multiculturalism, it is not the enemy of the state. We were at war in Germany, Japan, Korea, Vietnam, and Iraq. We are not at war with other Americans over their claims about cultural identity. This language of culture war has turned patriotism into a game of capture the flag where each side expresses feigned outrage at the moral idiocies of the other. The new illiberal democracies, as they're sometimes called, and the strong men who speak for them have effectively co-opted the language of patriotism and put it to work for their own causes. These nationalist movements have learned an important lesson. In order to defeat an enemy, you have to take a page from their book. So the nationalist right has learned to speak the language of the multicultural left. If minorities have a right to identity, identity politics, why shouldn't white men, Christian evangelicals, incels, and other groups that see themselves as politically and culturally disenfranchised? White nationalism is only the most recent and the most toxic form of this kind of grievance politics. When former Iowa Congressman Steve King, a self-described American nationalist, disingenuously asked, when did, the, when did white supremacy become offensive? He gave pitch-perfect expression to this new form of grievance politics. Both of these extremes, I argue, are dehumanizing. They are, in fact, mirror images of one another. If patriotism misused can be harsh and punitive, at its best, it can also be elevating and ennobling. 
It would be easy, as we witness the rise of ethno-nationalism in various parts of the world, to reject patriotism as tainted with xenophobia, racism, and other forms of ethnic and religious bigotry. But things are not so simple. These are not expressions of patriotism, but perversions of it. Patriotism is frequently presented as making sacrifices for one's country during times of war, and in the extreme case, the sacrifice of life itself. We all enjoy watching movies like Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan or Clint Eastwood's Flags of Our Fathers, many, many others, because they depict the heroism of men in battle, making the ultimate sacrifice in times of war. This is true on the extreme occasions, but more often, I want to argue, patriotism involves small sacrifices, like wearing a mask or getting a vaccine to prevent a raging pandemic, not just for yourself, but for the health and safety of your family, friends, and community. Patriotism involves certain lower case qualities, like civility, respect for the law, tolerance, honor, and responsibility. If these seem too much to ask, if they seem to violate your inviolable right to liberty, then you will be, I suspect, incapable of making any, gre any greater sacrifice for the public good when it will be required. These may be small gestures, but I want to conclude by saying they point to something of greater, perhaps even infinite, importance. Thank you very much.